I'm a fan. It's a pleasure. Thank you so much. Uh, I'm really happy to be here. So let's talk uh, uh, about the album. Obviously, it was recorded very quickly. Yeah. Uh, Reeves Gabrels was very involved in uh, in co-songwriting with you, yeah, which yeah. suggests to me that a lot of the stuff probably came together on the road. True? Nope. Very little of it. <laughs> it came together virtually in the first week that we got into the studio. We went in about four or five days after the tour finished, specifically with the impulse to write material which would show off the band's abilities at that moment in time. It really was, I think, Reeves and I wanted to develop something that would be virtually a, a, a sort of a sonic photograph of the band um, at the end of the tour, because we felt we'd really reached the zenith. We were immodestly proud of how we were. We thought we were a really good band and we wanted to get some vehicle to show off the kind of aggression and, and the dynamics of the band. So that's what we wrote, really. And we wrote the whole thing, other than the two or three that were pre-written, in the eight days that we had. And then the band came in and I guess it must have taken two and a half weeks in all to do the album. And then we were in mix mode. You recorded here in New York City, yeah. um, which is interesting to me because I would have thought that um, in so much as a, an atmosphere can sort of bleed into a recording um, that one might have chosen to record in London where it, it sort of seems to be the hub of a lot of the music that you're trying for. I think logistically was the first uh, first motivation is that everybody's American in the band. I'm the only limey in it. and. Uh, the uh, three of them live on the East Coast and Mike Garson lives in California so it, it, this really was the central point and so it, it seemed better to w work here but I, li I like the energy level in New York you know and at least it's got a it's got breaking science one shop that that deals in drum and bass <laughs> Well, people always say that atmospheres bleed through to recordings, and yeah. I feel like even coming in uh, this afternoon, you feel instantly energized by being in New York, by the, the cabs blowing their horns yeah. and, and, and all of this stuff. And yeah. so uh, stuff like that does tend to bleed over into the psyche, at least, if nothing else, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's a very high-energy town. You do get the ch I mean, Tricky was just working here last week with a guy called Gerald doing DJ work. So everybody comes through New York. You know, you don't have to uh, really search out anything. It is here. Now, there was a single that you released, um, I guess it was with Guy Called Gerald of yeah. Telling Lies that came out as an actual single. I know there was one that went on the internet, but I'm speaking specifically of what came out. And, and you know, I remember being excited seeing it in the store and, and buying it and then reading reviews afterwards and sort of dance uh, things, which wasn't traditionally your domain. And, and frankly, they weren't that good. And it must have been somewhat disappointing for you, I would think, um, starting on something kind of new. Not really, because I'm not working for a dance audience. Uh, I think it was probably more disappointing for a guy called Gerald because it's fairly hypocritical because they generally love his work um, but we have our own audience I mean we've uh, now been working over 16 months on the road off and on and, and uh, I think we're quite happy with who we have coming to see us. You know, you mentioned Tricky, and it's interesting to me because I know that uh, he's had very high praise for you and, and for the work that you've done and, and you know it would have been sort of interesting or, or it occurred to me that it would have been interesting had you tried to perhaps co-opt him to work with you in much the same way that Madonna had approached Bjork, but I mean, I guess that well, wasn't part of the agenda. Frankly, I think we do what we do well ourselves. I don't think we need any outside help, frankly. You know, it's sort of, we know what we want, and it's not jungle, and it's not industrial. It's our own thing, so we do it great ourselves in that way, you know. <laughs> we know what we're doing. <laughs> You've been saying a lot about wanting to tour, and I even read something that you said you were thinking of maybe doing like, uh, you know, if, again, if logistics would permit, but um, doing something like a club date and then doing 
like a rave, which seems to me like you're putting yourself not, in front of a, a tough not audience. Ameri- not in America, because you haven't got any uh, to speak of. Uh, that's that's pretty much our European option, and we've we're, we're doing that. Yeah, we're going to be crossing. We're back on the festival circuit in Britain, and in Europe next uh, this summer coming, and uh, we're flip flopping on weekends. We're doing a couple of raves and then go back to regular festivals during the week. Is there a template for that? I mean, there aren't many live bands, because you're doing it in a live band configuration of, of doing it yeah. within something that's essentially sort of heavily processed, you know, pre-recorded music. Yeah. Well, I mean, there are, I mean, Tricky himself works live band and Massive Attack work, work live band. There are, there are a certain amount of uh, dance-oriented bands that work live. Um, all we have to do is be good. <laughs> really <laughs> that's that's the only template you need we just got to go and be the dog's bollocks i love that expression that is very english but it's a great <laughs> expression <laughs> dog's bollocks folks um i saw the the show that you had done uh in my town anyway with uh nine inch nails and, and it was interesting because there was kids in the audience when you did man who sold the world and they said wow david bowie covering nirvana how cool um <laughs> and <laughs> It seemed like or such a. How dare he? <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, have you found yourself sort of, uh, especially with sort of internet exploring that you're doing and going to chat rooms? I know you don't generally sign on as yourself, but yeah. but have you found things like that, like you know, people just truly being unaware of past work that you've done and just sort of coming in at this point and picking it up from there? Of course, I mean, I, but that's inevitable. I, there are some kids who are very much maybe like I was as a kid. I wanted to know everything about everything. So I, I always knew first on the block who was doing what and where they come from and what was the history of that thing. But a uh, 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 majority of people don't, they don't react like that to stuff, you know. It's sort of like what they've just heard is what they've just heard and that's all they know about it. And that's, that's how generally a population is, you know. So it's only kind of uh, academic freaks like me that bother to look things up that's an interesting way of putting it i think um this is perhaps somewhat personal but as someone who had experimented a lot with drugs and and spoken about it sometimes fondly some always funnily if i can say that but certainly there, there's a drug culture that's inherent to jungle and and uh trip-hop and so forth have you experimented yeah. with that no what with the drug itself mm, no i've got my own vocabulary in terms of drugs and it comes from a long way back I think it's uh, it's part and parcel of every new music to develop a, its own drug line along with it. With jazz, it was alcohol and heroin, um, and then it was the uh, speed. Infe- amphetamine was pretty heavy, heavily used in the 50s when rock and roll was first starting, uh, and then it became more the LSD and uh, marijuana generation of the 60s. It was back to speed and cocaine for the 70s, 80s the beginning of designer drugs and now it's basically e and uh some of the uh more some of the killer drugs that are out there um uh, but it does it doesn't necessarily mean the two have to be permanently entwined with each other um before i i, I got involved in any kind of drug life in the 70s i was quite happy buying my music without drugs before then and subsequent to that but do you give any stock or do you put any stock into people who say that it does sort of expand the experience and that it is a different kind of drug than, than cocaine or, or heroin or, or anything else, insofar as it seems to be sort of tied into how one responds organically to the music, if, if you know what I'm saying? It really depends on the individual. I mean, I, I know people that have taken drugs that were idiots before they took them and were worse after they'd taken them. <laughs> 
<laughs> and some people it really ch did change their ways of thinking um, I think it helps a lot if you survive it um, what's really bad though is when you die that's that's like a real downer man uh, it's like taking it's like getting into a rocket ship you know you kind of want to take the journey to the stars but the back of your mind is, is this fucker gonna blow up is this is this thing gonna blow up um, and and that's very much how I, I think about it I mean I'm very really lucky that I kind of I came out in one piece out of, out of it all uh, but I'm glad I did it I really am it was uh, an extraordinary journey but I would never advise I couldn't advise anybody to do it because I just know the rocket ship may blow up before you even get off the takeoff point you know. mm. but yeah the journey is incredible seeing all those stars and planets it's a very honest thing to say but hey, it's true. Hey, what can I say? <laughs> <laughs> um, I'd like to go back to the album outside for just a second. Um, if I've got this right, I'd read, uh, I think it was in Billboard, that, that you were thinking of, not of it as, as a, a door closed necessarily at this point, but just sort of put aside for a while and that you might pick up the thread and, and you know, who knows where it could go. It could be something that might be staged or filmed or yeah. taken other mediums. Tell me about that. <laughs> Well, but Brian and I have decided just not to meet on the making of the next one. We've started already sending backwards and forwards the narrative of the next album. It's called Contamination. Um, uh, hopefully we'll get it finished by the late summer. Um, but I think what our discipline was that it's possible to do one without ever having to be in the studio at the same time. Brian and his wife and family are going to move to Russia in next month. They're going to live there now. They're, that's it. They've quit England. They're going to live in Russia. And so we'll be doing it between New York and St. Petersburg. <laughs> we'll be sending stuff to each other and putting it together, putting it together like that. Um, I think we should have the, the, the three that we have in mind finished. Hopefully we've got to get this finished by 1999. Um, and, uh, there's a festival in Europe called the Salzburg Festival, and they've commissioned it already to be a theatrical piece for 2000 with Robert Wilson actually directing it so it's kind of it's a pressing engagement in a way can you elaborate a little bit on where the plot goes from from the end of the last record it time slips it goes between two centuries it become uh, from the uh, 20th century back to the 17th uh, there's two par parallel fictions uh, and people that are, are involved in both those centuries having communications with each other Ooh, uh. <laughs> And why is Brian Eno in Russia? There are some drag pirates in it as well, you'll be pleased to hear. And why, why is... Oh, right, the, yeah, no, this is serious. This, this, this is one of the incidents in the thing. It involves what, what we call the boogie pirates. And the boogie pirates are not fictitious, they're for real. Uh, when Sidney Raffles first started, uh, the, the man who uh, invented the Singapore sling, um, Sidney Raffles founded uh, Singapore. Um, he used as his protection, as his bodyguard, a, a, um, a, a local pirate tribe called the Boogies. They were, that's literally what they were called, the Boogies. Where we get our, the Boogie Men Will Get You, all that comes from there. And their particular bent um, is that they would dress up as women on their ships and entice the British ships over to them as though it was some kind of floating whorehouse. So when the British ships tied up to them, they would leap over and cut the throats of all the British and take the booty so they were the transvestite pirates of the of the Chinese seas and when Raffles developed Singapore he opened up a street for them called Boogie Street which eventually became the best known transvestite street in the whole of the Far East 
Isn't that interesting? <laughs> I think so, it's interesting, yes. And, and so the boogies do make an appearance on this next one, on contamination. But And back to the other question, why would Eno want to live in St. Petersburg? I haven't got a clue. <laughs> <laughs> he hasn't told me. I have no idea. I just got a letter from him. Oh, I should probably mention to you uh, that Anthea and I are uh, picking up the kids and we're going off to live in St. Petersburg. The house is on the market, and uh, so I'll write you when I get there. He does, but that's very Brian. It's, uh, he, I remember when he disappeared to Thailand during the 80s. He couldn't stand the 80s, so he went to Thailand. <laughs> I think he was very wise, actually. I should have gone to Thailand during the 80s as well. <laughs> Doesn't he have a great wine cellar? What's he going to do with that? I'd, I'm not sure if he has a wine cellar. I think he's got a cupboard, cupboard with a few bottles in <laughs> Brian with a wine cellar. Mm, I'm not sure about that. No, I, I thought I'd heard that he was really big on Maybe, wine. I wouldn't know. I don't drink, so I wouldn't have paid much notice yeah, to it anyway. Um, just to, to put it on a, a specific track back to you, you, you made sort of in, in passing a, in just, you know, forgetting about the 80s. But I mean, do you feel as though uh, this decade so far is, has treated you differently, creatively, artistically, critically? I've treated it differently. I mean, I think I, I've, uh, I, feel, I feel very comfortable uh, in the 90s. Uh, it's, I speak the same language as it. it it's... Uh, it's really a more sophisticated use of the fragmentation and chaos theory type things that Brian and I were exploring in the in the 70s and uh, and the ideas of randomizing are just totally part of my vocabulary and so I it's like it's like I've suddenly found a race of people who speak Esperanto like I learned all on my own way back then it's it's sort of I just plugged into it I understand it very well I didn't understand the 80s at all you know I'm not sure if I uh, sort of subscribe to it, but there does seem to be uh, a preoccupation with, you know, a millennium, pre-millennium tension, yeah. uh, as, as Tricky has said. I, is that something that you think perhaps has an influence over, over how things are sort of, if I understand what you're saying, caught up with you a little bit? I think we're, I think we're, we're between a rock and a hard place. I think what's happening is that we uh, have a real admission uh, to the philosophies of the 20th century, which is that we live in fragmentation, we live in, we live in chaos. And I think there's uh, more of an acceptance of that. But my take on it is that you can either develop a positive or a negative attitude to it. And I think the negative attitude is to believe that we're just ripping apart our civilization. But I think the positive take is that the chaos and fragmentation that we do find are the bricks and mortar of a future society and that this is the chance to rebuild everything, rebuild our beliefs and our social systems. You know? I think it's almost like the old adage of having to destroy God to reinvent him, you know, not in one's own image, don't think I'm saying that, um, but to take the idea of a spiritual life out of the enclave of a medieval and feudal way of thinking and restructure it for the way that things really are now. So in, in sort of formulating that kind of philosophy, uh, do you think that it's going to have, is there going to be a theological impact that you've considered um, and, and what sort of theological studies, I guess, have you done that, that have sort of brought that into focus? I don't know if I'm phrasing this very no, well. No, but yes, it, no, it makes sense. I think probably that the, uh, continually uh, the momentum of the movement away from organized religion, I think, will become 
uh, a viable option for uh, a lot of people. I think there were the also the at uh, the negative side of it is that there'll be small enclaves of fanatics who will develop stronger and stronger ties to absolutes. Um, but they eventually will become the uh, minority, I think. And if we do move away from organized religion, we'll develop what's called the American Gnosticism, I think. Uh, there's a, a writer, literary analyst called Harold Bloom that wrote a great book last year called The American Religion. Uh, I was sent a copy uh, not too long ago because somebody spotted that he says the same line that I said in one of the songs on the new album, which is I, I mentioned that I just happened to throw out that God is an American on one song. And Harold Bloom actually almost says the same thing. He says uh, the Americans believe that God, uh, that Jesus is an American. Um, but what I think he's really saying, he's not, he's not being hostile at all to that idea. He himself is uh, a Jewish Gnostic. But I think that what he's, he's saying, that the idea of Gnosticism or one's own one-to-one -one relationship with God without the uh, interfacing device of a church or a priest or somebody who can give you permission to talk to God, you know, um, is very much what our needs are becoming. Um, and parallel with that is the idea that our event horizon is so fast now, the deluge of news every day, continually, constantly, 24 hours a day, there is too much information for us to really reevaluate what even yesterday's history was. I mean, it's very hard for anybody to say what the four most important news events were, say, last week. It, it gets very difficult to actually remember what has happened. So history is starting to become anachronistic. We may be in a place in 20 years' time where history actually is the definition of an old piece of language. I mean, it doesn't mean anything anymore in quite the way that we know it now. Um, in which case, we're being pressured into thinking very much in the moment, that we're becoming a civilization that thinks in today terms, rather than equating it or defining it by what happened yesterday and what could happen tomorrow which then brings you into a kind of an industrialized dharma. It's almost like a Buddhist way of thinking. Um, so I think we're moving towards a Buddhistic, now-oriented, one-to-one relationship with, with our spiritual life. That's what I think anyway. <laughs> And you know it, it's interesting because uh, there's a there's a thread in there. There's a theme in that that just on a purely esoteric level that is something that I've heard someone like Marilyn Manson say when he's talking about you know wanting to get away from that sense of organized anything and and bring it around to one person and it so happens to be uh, him. Maybe you talked about that with Floria. Love. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, good old Marilyn. Well. What? <laughs> What's the question? I don't know. I, I just I wanted to just bounce it off you because I, you know, obviously you would be aware of his work and and yeah, yeah, presume yeah. it's all given in this very specific context of what yeah, he supposedly believes in. I mean, I, I I don't know. I don't know Marilyn. I I understand he's a very uh, a very sweet and articulate young man, and uh, if he's anything like Trent, then he's very bright. Um, I think is I think I think the imagery that he's using is fairly fundamental, and I don't find it even remotely evil. Um, I'd rather not get into what I do believe is evil because it's. Uh, um, I think it's. I think yeah. I think it's. Uh, I think it does pinpoint the idea of the ritualization of life at the moment. I think that taking away the 
foundation of or reliance upon or belief in an organized and established religion the need for a ritual is still very much with man and he has to ritualize to some extent it's a series of gestures and movements and words and phrases and chants that he believes uh, uh, um, evolves his spiritual life but if you haven't got the church and you haven't got really a replacement for it you develop your own very human kind of ritualizations and that's what's led to the preoccupation with uh, um, body art and the visual arts um, evil Knievel happenings with Marilyn Manson with the general referring everything to the human body because the human body symbolically becomes the religion and the organization and the church and so you start destroying that and taking it apart but that's fairly predictable I think good answer <laughs> let me bring it back to you specifically um, I've always wondered, do you, do you keep a journal? I mean, a lot of artists keep journals, and, and it could very well be uh, at some point for the purpose of uh, writing a book, you know, keeping it, keeping oh, it all I upstairs. I keep a journal for, all three or four days at a time. <laughs> I'm so undisciplined. Uh, I, uh, I kick myself all the time that I don't take advantage of the quirky, funny things that happen. <laughs> I just don't... I c occasionally remember them and I can sort of produce them as anecdotes but I'm not I wish I could keep a journal I just I just don't I hoard I've got stuff that goes way way back to the 60s that I've kept the most insignificant seeming things at the time that I've just kept my my hands on um, everything from Mick Ronson's uh, guitar picks to you know I mean still a small kind of strange things um, and I can create a fabric of what happened in the past, but not any kind of linear story. But I could produce it in images because I've got things. So would you be interested in, in ever sitting down and putting that together? Does that hold any appeal, that sort of nostalgia? <laughs> no, I, I, I'm just not. No, I don't have a reverence for nostalgia or, or reminiscence. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not really that kind of person. Uh, I, I do I do. Feel that that my orientation is contemporaneous. It's not. Uh, I don't. I don't. Uh, I'm not nourished much by the past at all. I'm nourished by what's happening now. That's what keeps me uh, perpetually curious and uh, uh, interested in, in. I like every 24 hours as they go past. I try and enjoy them. Crazy question, but having uh, spent the time to to get into. Crazy girl. Boom, boom. Um, but, but having spent the time and, and knowing this sort of what's involved in, in assuming a character and assuming a life as you did uh, so beautifully, I might add, with, with Warhol, who would you have play you in a film? Uh, I'd rather they didn't. <laughs> well, I think you would have to... Uh, David Bowie is a multifaceted and complex person. I think it would need at least five or six actors to actually in in real depth to carry out the fundamental complexity of this character this person that we know as a a rock god uh, it would have to be of men of of tried and true passions of integrity and of a great love of their country i would say I leonardo know. dicaprio <laughs> <laughs> I really don't know. <laughs> Somebody in drag. <laughs> 
I'm going to end on this point because I, I know our time is almost done. But PJ Harvey, there you go. PJ Harvey in a wig. I'm just trying to imagine that, and uh, cool, might work. It? Might that would work. Be, that would be really interesting to do it sort of a more avant-garde style. It'd be kind of cool to PJ Harvey in a wig play me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So I will on, end on this point. Um, it's standard, but what are you listening to? I mean, what sort of things excite you? Um, uh, who do I like? Oh, <clears throat> it's, okay, this week, and it has to be this week, I guess. I'm still playing Scott Walker. I think I'll probably play him for the rest of my life. He put out an album last year called Tilt, which is, for me is one of the best albums of the year. Oh, for the last 10 years. Oh, this century. A um, uh, little young band called Placebo have a very good album out the, uh, I like them a lot in fact I get them to support us as much as possible they're, they're really great the Kid Brian who runs it and uh, sort of his lead vocalist very good writer I think um, I like uh, there's a good drummer bass um, unit in London at the moment called Stormtrooper they're really excellent um, quite an interesting American band called Pigeonhead um, well, how many more do you want uh, <laughs> Let me see. I like the last DJ Spooky album. That was quite nice. Uh, and there's a band on Virgin that uh, I got them to sign called Fotech. They're really excellent. Fotech. They're drum and bass. More sophisticated than most. They're kind of more jazz-oriented. It's really interesting stuff. Not terribly commercial, but, I mean, it's just a really great sound. Is it Brian Molka? Is that his name from yes, Placebo? Right. Do you see some of yourself in him? You must. I do. I do, actually. I think there's something about his... Uh, he's very single-minded, incredibly focused, and I recognise that a lot. Um, also, there's something of the androgynous about him, I guess, that I kind of think, oh, no, you. <laughs> now I'll see you in the mirror about 30 years ago. Um, so I guess it's a bit narcissistic in that way. Um, but he has his completely his own thing. I mean, he's not a Bowieite at all. He, you know, he writes and plays in, in his own fashion. And uh, I just, well, I just think he's a very talented songwriter. He's got a new single coming out, I think, this week called Nancy Boy, which is not to be confused with the band of the same name. It's all about yes, I know, great, isn't it? It's all about P.J. Harvey, I think, uh, wearing a wig and trying to pass herself off as a as a rock god. I know the album, actually. I saw them with Weezer, inexplicably. Yeah. But um, there is actually one more thing that, that uh, came to mind. Um, I read about it in uh, uh, Billboard, and it was also in the New York Times about something that you're trying to do with respect to um, the stock market and floating things. Can you explain that to me? Been there, done that. <laughs> uh, no, I wouldn't discuss it, but it's uh, merely money. Let me put it to you in, in a very specific way, then. Um, it occurs to me that in order for an actor to make a movie and pursue his craft he doesn't have to put out the money to make a film he's allowed to be the actor and is paid to bring his craft and his artistry into this forum and it seems to be quite the opposite for musicians um, in that they have to not only bring their artistry and craft to what they're doing but they're also expected to foot the bill do yeah. you see a time when that might change is that climate slowly shifting around no no they'll always have to foot the bill because that's how life is. Well, what about something like maybe Perry Farrell's label Insect World and the stuff that he's trying to do uh, with respect to the internet? Obviously, you've done, you've and, experimented and the too. Will always come from the artists themselves. I mean, they'll reap the returns of their own investments, and which I don't think is a bad thing, mind you know, because I'm, 
I'm very Western in that way. I'm quite a capitalist in that way. Not in a, I don't mean in a accruing and gathering uh, uh, finance for financial um, reasons as a priority above all. But uh, um, I do believe that it's uh, it's pretty good exercise to be able to fund oneself. And if you have really interesting ideas that nobody else is interested in, to try and develop the money to support those ideas and create them yourself. Um, I think it's a good discipline. When things were really tough, I, re I mean, the only way that I really got noticed in the first place is that I was able to get the capital together, put on the show that I wanted to put on. You know, there wasn't anybody running around to help me. Um, these kids just don't understand, you see. They think that everything is going to be given to them on a plate. <gasps> and it's not like that, you see. But you were also horribly ripped off, too. Yeah, I know. That's because I wasn't very good at business. But I knew how to put a show on. I knew it needed money, and I would sort of work and do things to make the money. So do you think, specifically with respect to something like the Internet and being able to disseminate songs that way, um, it would perhaps detract from sort of the, the constitution that an artist would build up in having to draw these resources in order to further their own creativity? Great, at the moment, it's a great forum for new artists, a great way of getting material to a new audience, but I guarantee you within uh, of the foreseeable future that somehow or other regulations will be passed by corporate entities so that they continue to monopolize the distribution services of music. It, the freedom will not remain for very much longer. It, that's a negative reaction to the net, but I'm afraid that's probably what will happen. As night becomes day, <laughs> taxes and corporate distribution and death. You can count on those. So why even bother? Why bother even experimenting with it at all? Because you've got to. <laughs> it's as simple as that. You've got to. Well, we'll end on that point, if that's okay. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> Not at all.